The Center for Thinking Biblically is a ministry of the Masters University. Visit thinkbiblically.org for more information. So everyone knows the story of Pompeii. It's one of the stories that little kids hear in school, maybe third, fourth, fifth grade, they hear about this volcanic explosion. Every little kid is fascinated with volcanoes, and everyone hears about how these cities were, were buried in ash, and that, that human beings were, in a sense, materially preserved by being cast, and that you can actually go as a tourist just south of Naples and visit Pompeii. And... Um, uh, as excavation over Pompeii proceeded over a number of centuries, uh, one of the rooms in a nearby town was uh, 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 was opened up in a in a personal residence, what the Romans called a domus, a house, and they removed all the material that had filled the room. They didn't find any preserved uh, human remains or molds in there, but. As they excavated the ancient ash from the original uh, eruption of Vesuvius in AD 79, they found that wonderfully preserved, not humans, but pieces of human art. One of the things that Romans did if they had some money was they would have the walls of the interiors of their private houses painted, sometimes nature scenes, sometimes scenes from history, bits of Roman mythology, things like that. It was a very popular way to decorate your house. And what they found in this particular Roman house was a very puzzling scene. It's kind of a broad fresco, about a dozen feet across, and there are a number of figures. And in the center, a little bit to the right, on a raised dais, kind of a raised platform, there's a seated figure, and next to him a couple of standing figures, and the seated figure seems to be leaning forward. He seems to be a guy in charge of things. And uh, below uh, him on the dais is what appears to be a woman who's kneeling down and begging upward towards him. And then off to the left, there's a table, and off to the side of the table is another female figure, and laying on the table is a small child. And just to our left in the visual space, just to the left of the child, is a character that's clearly dressed in Roman soldier's armor. And he's holding up a giant sword that looks like a meat cleaver. And he's getting ready to bring it down on this baby that's laying on the table. Now, it's quite clear to anyone that's read the Old Testament carefully that this image is a visual retelling of the famous narrative in Kings of what is known as the Judgment of Solomon, right? There are two women, and they both have uh, little infant uh, children, and they're in this house, and one of the children dies, and so the woman whose child dies now claims that the other child is her child, and the other woman is stealing it. And so the case is, you know, no one can solve the case. How do you prove which child? They don't, they don't have genetic testing. There are no witnesses. There's no other family, apparently. How are we going to prove whose child this is? And so they bring this case of the two women claiming the one child, both of them, as their own child. They bring this to Solomon, who is the wisest of all judges. And so Solomon comes up with his judgment, and he says, oh, well, that's easy. We can solve that. I don't have time for this. Get the soldier, bring in the, and cut the baby in half, and each of you gets half. Immediately, the true biological mother's maternal instincts kick in. No, 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 just, just, just take the baby, take the baby. She would rather lose her child than her child lose his life. 
And that is how the wise Solomon is able to discern who the real mother is, which one reacted like that. So this is a story, of course, that's well known in Jewish circles, but it probably would not have been a story that you would have heard Greeks tell or Romans tell, because the Greeks and the Romans thought that the Jews were a bunch of, you know, uh, people that lived out in the sand uh, off to the east where the sun rose. That's why the, that, that Middle Eastern kosher is called the Levant. It's the, it's the levering up of the sun. And they thought that the Jews were these crazy people. They were particularly crazy because they had all kind of weird rules about what you could eat and couldn't eat and what you could do and not do and so on and so forth. And, 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 and they thought they were particularly nuts because they did have a beautiful temple for a long time there in their capital of Jerusalem. But the temple was really a joke because there were no gods in there. And the Romans and the Greeks would joke, the Jews, well, you, you have a temple with no God. And the Jews would be like, but your temple is filled with things that you made and called your gods. Our temple has a place where we don't go, and that's where our God meets us, our God whom we cannot look upon and live. And so the Romans and the Greeks had a pretty low view of the Jews. They recognized that many of them were intellectually brilliant. There were a few cases of Greeks and Romans who had read some parts of what we would call the Old Testament and recognized the, the beauty of it. As a matter of fact, uh, there's an ancient Greek book called Perihupsos, which means On the Sublime, written by a Greek philosopher named Longinus, and he's talking about all the kinds of things in the natural world, the stars at night or the sun rising over the sea or the beauty of the Alps uh, that he called sublime, that are so aesthetically powerful and mysterious and in some cases terrifying, like being out on the open ocean in a little leaky wooden boat that would just take you out of your body with awe and fear. That's the experience of the sublime. And he says, sometimes artists and writers can produce things that are sublime. And he gives a few examples from Greek literature, but he says, one of the most sublime things anyone can ever read is when the lawgiver of the Jews says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he says, that is sublime. You read that and go, well, there's really something to that. Of course, there's something to that. The problem is that we've all suppressed that truth. But Longinus recognized the sublimity and the power of the opening of Genesis as Moses wrote it down, given the words by the Holy Spirit. And so there may have been a few Romans and Greeks who would have known the story of Solomon, but as a general rule, no. The wisdom of Solomon, the brilliance and the splendor of the Sol Solomonic court had spread throughout the ancient world, but this was generations upon generations upon generations later, and he was not well known, by and large, to Greeks and Romans. So why would a Roman house just outside of Naples, on the Bay of Naples, at the foot of what the Italians now call the Gran Cono, the Great Cone of Vesuvius, why would they have that scene painted on their wall? Maybe it was a house of a Jewish person. That's possible. Could have been the house of a Christian person. Possible. There were some Jews, a number of Hellenized Jews that lived in Italy. There were uh, certainly uh, a few Christians around at that time, but it seems perhaps a little bit more likely that it was just a Roman citizen who had a scene that they may have heard of, or maybe the artist had heard of, and had it painted on the wall. It's very dramatic. 
But what's really interesting is if you look at the far bottom left of this fresco, there's a gathering of people, and they're watching as Solomon dispenses his brilliantly wise and wisely brilliant judgment, where he makes a kind of a discerning decision. He basically cuts through everything by threatening to cut through the child. And if we look, we will see that there are two figures that are rather prominent. They have very small bodies, but very, very large heads. They are clearly important to the narrative. They're not mere anonymous bystanders. And we see one large bald head of a person who could only charitably described as not very good looking. And then we see another figure, younger, with a thick coat of dark hair and a rich dark beard. Now, you may not recognize them, but any person educated in the visual culture of ancient Greece and Rome would instantly recognize these two, particularly because they were next to each other. They are the same two characters that we see in Raphael's School of Athens in the center of the painting. They are the great inventors of Western philosophy. In some ways, we could even say the great ultimate root inventors of Western thought and Western culture, Plato and Aristotle. We have a number of busts, carvings, and paintings of these two from the ancient Greek and Roman world. And while we don't have a photograph of them when they're alive, there was a long tradition from their lives forward of what they looked like. Plato, who's also identified very much with his teacher Socrates, was you know, pretty famously ugly and had a very large bald head, sometimes kind of a beard coming down the side. Aristotle, very dignified face, aquiline nose, high forehead, large shock of brown hair, and a full beard. And what you get in this painting are these two characters who seem to be in conversation far off to the left, but both of them are looking over to the viewer's right and they are watching Solomon dispense his judgment on what appears to be, legally speaking, an insoluble problem that goes right to the core of human life. Parenting, mothering a child. And there's no mistaking what's happening because Aristotle and Plato are shown with astonished faces, leaning forward, putting their head perhaps even on their hands, in a state of bewilderment at the brilliance of divine wisdom and judgment. You can learn a lot from Plato and a lot from Aristotle. I spent a lot of last summer reading Cicero, who John Calvin calls the eminent pagan. The greatest of the Reformed theologians calls Cicero the first century pagan Roman rhetorician and philosopher, he calls him the eminent pagan. He's brilliant. He's got a highly developed moral sense. He's, he's a phenomenally excellent man in every way, and yet he's a pagan. While Calvin praises him, he also critiques him where he is wrong. Can you learn from pagans? Can you learn some things from pagan culture? Of course you can. Pagans get some things right. They also get some things wrong. But remember, in the fallen state, none of us gets everything right, and none of us gets everything wrong. The rankest pagan, who is wrong about virtually everything, including themselves, is still ultimately right about one thing. They know there's a God, and they suppress that truth, and that suppressed truth always comes back out as 
the intimately interwoven production of human culture, human artifacts, human ideas. And the moment you begin comparing those things that human beings produce to what Scripture says about God and about man and about man's state before the fall, indescribably glorious, and man's state after the fall, indescribably awful. And the fact of man's glory before the fall is what makes his depravity after the fall that much more inglorious. When you begin to compare human culture to Scripture, as Paul does in Acts 17, as Daniel and Moses exemplify in the Old Testament, and you put it within the framework of the ultimate truth about what human depravity does in the suppression of the truth of God and man, then everything in human culture begins to make sense. Thank you for listening to the Center for Thinking Biblically podcast. To help support this ministry, please visit thinkbiblically.org forward slash donate. To learn more about the Masters University on campus and online undergraduate and graduate programs, visit masters.edu.